This podcast is sponsored by GCK Consulting, a next generation political consulting firm. From fundraising to polling to campaign strategy, GCK is helping get millennials elected all across the country. To learn more about GCK and their services, just go to gckconsults.com. Again, that's gckconsults.com. All right, now to the podcast. Welcome to the Millennial Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Jordan Valerie. My pronouns are she, her, hers. And today I'm joined by Illinois State House Representative and 2020 Democratic U.S. Senate candidate, Ann Stava Murray. Thanks for coming on and congrats on winning your election. Thank you. And my pronouns are also she, her, hers. And I am so excited to have won my election, to have set a different path with my election, actually ran my election completely differently in a way that was very much more millennial-driven, how to run a campaign with a millennial. Uh, so I'm excited to share some of that and whatever el- other questions you have ready for me. I love I love chatting with my fellow millennials and uh, talking about our issues that matter most to us. Awesome. Well, let's start out with that. What What inspired you to jump into your race initially? And how exactly was your campaign different? So I ran for state rep in uh, 2018. And it's funny because I actually was running against another millennial, one of the very first state races where we've had millennial versus millennial. Now, the millennial I was running against had risen through student government in the University of Illinois and had been identified early by the Tea Party as a person who would be uh, perhaps a, a good advocate for them. And so he had a series of appointments that got him into the role that was then my state representative after the 2016 election. I started meeting with him and I thought, hey, you know what? I, I never thought that I would go into politics, but we desperately need people who care about people. And it seems like this guy is trying to play some games and do what his party wants him to do and not necessarily care about his voters as his top priority. And what were the issues that you focused on in the campaign? So the number one issue that I started out was actually gun violence. One of the only two votes that my opponent had sat out in the fall of 2017 was a vote on the bump stock ban. And he not only sat that one out, but he backed the NRA version of the bill that sort of used bump stock ban in air quotes and didn't actually ban anything. So that made me really upset. And I was, I was very participatory in the Women's March and a lot of the activism that came after I became a community activist. And so I was very vocal in criticizing that he had taken, decided to take a no vote on that or not even a no vote. He didn't even come for the vote. So he, he had an excused absence. He was in Springfield that day, left for one of the last two votes of the day. I was lucky enough with Lauren Underwood and another friend of ours, Val Montgomery, we were all on the cover of Time Magazine for the Avengers cover. And so after that, we had a lot of media and press. So I talked a lot about the gun issue then. Then obviously Parkland happened. A bunch of bills ended up coming up in the spring. And he actually ended up voting for a couple of them. And I think we can thank the pressure that me running put on him actually making those votes that were more consistent with our district, whereas months prior, he had been completely willing to skip out on his vote. So that's one thing I'd say for anyone considering running, whether or not people tell you that you win, a lot of people will tell you that you can't win. 
But you know what? You A, you can win and you can win in a hundred different ways that aren't the election outcome. So this was one of my significant early wins was getting him to flip his votes to come more into alignment with the feelings of his district. Now, when going on from there, I, our finances in the state of Illinois were like the 50th worst state. We have $300 billion worth of debt as a state. Our bonds are constantly on the verge of junk bond status. So that threatens programs like higher education funding, MAP grants, which are uh, grants that offset the cost for college students who need help with paying for college the most. There's a ton of uh, domestic violence shelters were shutting down while we had our state government shut down last year. There's a ton of issues at play where when you have status quo politicians who are willing to play the game with people's lives, you don't see the kind of resolution that's needed so people don't literally die because the politicians were ineffective. And going into this legislative session, what are your priorities and concerns? Absolutely. So uh, I am voting against the speaker as my first move. So obviously, one of my concerns has been making sure that there isn't too much active retribution against me for that. I was speaking out on a federally protected class. So for those who aren't familiar with the situation, Springfield is notorious for having tons of sexual assault. President Obama, in his memoir, actually referenced what a cesspool, and I use his word cesspool there, um, Springfield was when he first arrived. And so it really hasn't changed much in the past several decades. That's because of the leadership. I think the leadership should take responsibility for the culture. And so I asked for a change in leadership. I received some initial harassment and retribution. A big challenge for me will be overcoming that. And I think I've been finding some effective ways to deal with that. In terms of the legislation itself, I want to make sure that we're strengthening things like legislation that doesn't allow retaliation. I want to make sure we're having transparency in workplaces on reporting about harassment assault and retribution, because those three things, retribution is extremely high in many workplaces across our state and across our nation. Um, I'm actually running for U.S. Senate now. So a lot of these issues sort of dovetail with pieces that I could bring federally that are currently uh, just things that I'm introducing in Illinois. But again, that was a Transparency Act that requires companies of a certain size, so maybe 50 plus employees to be reporting out specific metrics and they'll be blinded. So you don't know who is behind them, but you put essentially maybe an aggregate for the past five years. So you really can't tell who left for what reasons. The total number of people who left and filed some sort of assault or harassment. I think we really need to be getting rid of NDAs in terms of companies abusing NDAs in order to keep their brand reputation while their employees are creating an unsafe work environment for their their other colleagues. So making sure that we're keeping the people who are being abused currently safe and not worrying about how to protect uh, against liability is the first and most primary issue as it is currently. And why exactly is it so difficult in your state politics to oppose the speaker? It's impossible to oppose the speaker on anything because the speaker holds an inordinate amount of power. He's been in power uh, 34 years, I think, and he rules with an iron fist and everyone knows that. And so he doesn't stand for someone 
going against what he thinks is for the best for all Democrats. And so he makes it very clear that dissent is not allowed and dissent is not welcome. I, on the other hand, believe that dissent is patriotic. I believe that a democracy where a leader gets 100% of the votes doesn't feel like a democracy to me. It sounds like a dictatorship. I think there's a number of issues where we don't see eye to eye. And when I think of just the hundreds of, of women and some men who have gone through this culture and experienced harassment and assault, have had to leave their careers, do something different. I myself am changing up my career. Um, I won't run for state rep again because of the culture. And I'm looking at U.S. Senate because that's a place where I can help people, not just in workplaces in Illinois, but workplaces everywhere. I can help people who are having discrimination in all sorts of forms, not just gender discrimination, but also racial discrimination, uh, racial hatred, deaths that are happening on the basis of someone, the color of someone's skin. So there's so many issues that are incredibly important thinking about main things that boomers retained for themselves, privileges that boomers had when they were growing up, by and large. Um, a lot of these older white boomers that are most upset about me running, which seems to be uh, a certain cohort of very privileged folks, they, uh, I think, are mad because they say that I can't possibly be qualified enough and by definition, their qualification, of course, includes being in their generation or being, quote unquote, in in office long enough. They don't give you like a direct number of how many years you need to be there. But the reality is they haven't preserved affordable college. They haven't preserved homeownership. They haven't preserved the idea that we could even retire someday. So the thought to, that to mean then they're very self-righteously telling me who can and cannot run for office. Well, you know what tells us that? Our government tells us that. Our government has the regulations of who can run for office. I qualify to run for office. And I'm not going to let the people who raped and pillaged the next generations and are forcing us to pay back tons of their debt while ever small making the pot of money into fewer and fewer hands. I'm not going to let them dictate to me who's on my democratic ticket. And I hope a lot of us take advantage of the fact, a lot of us who live in Illinois take advantage of the fact that we are actually getting democracy here because ours, the, the guy that I'm running against, there's actually only ever been a white man in the Senate seat from Illinois that he currently occupies because there's two seats and they're distinct seats and they come up for election in different years. So there's only ever been a white man and it's, I think it's what's called the Southern Democrat white male seat. And so, being able to flip that to someone who's not a Southern Illinois white male Democrat is something that's going to be incredibly important for our democracy because they are not the majority and they're causing a lot of issues for us that we're going to have to handle. So the thought that they can somehow do better than us by occupying the seat for the next six years to me seems to use a term of their era to be a bit hogwash. And what policy differences do you have with your incumbent? Yeah, I mean, I think it's like a complete frame of mind and life experience difference. So I, uh, I don't, I'm not going to take any corporate PAC money. Uh, he's the Democratic whip. 
So obviously he's very in thick with the Democratic donors. I've been told I'll get no money because he's the whip and and because everyone is not going to go against a leader in that kind of way if he wants to continue on. The way it's treated is very weird because it's almost like a lifetime appointment where they think the voters don't get a shot because they say things like, well, it's up to him when he decides he wants to retire, as though the seat is his and in this election is not a real election. And yet what we see when we have election, when we have appointments, and I think that we're at a real risk for an appointment because I could see one of two scenarios being the case. One is he's saying that he's going to stay in the race until after the primary because Republicans won't spend on an incumbent uh, who is a leader for the opposite party. So because he's leadership of the opposite party, the Dems can almost automatically win. Now, that's definitely playing a political game and not democracy. And then number two, I think, which is also a big, big risk, is that he starts the term and then decides, oh, maybe I do want to be retired after all. And then who gets the appointment? It's a governor appointment. And last time we had a governor appoint a Senate seat, if I'm not mistaken, that governor ended up in jail. And before we go a bit more into Senate policy, I'd like to talk about your governor, J.B. Pritzker. There was a pretty big push in the primary to elect someone more progressive. A good candidate never quite materialized. What are your thoughts on J.B. Pritzker? Yeah, you know, I think that it's interesting. I feel kind of mixed. I think I would like J.B. Pritzker a little bit more if he had made Juliana governor. But I've heard I've heard generally good things. I didn't take any money from him and I didn't take any help from him because I do believe that we're supposed to have a check and balance. And so I'm one of the few where you'll get an honest opinion from me and not not that other people are trying to be dishonest, but he gave them money. And of course, like when someone gives you money, you're going to be happy and like them. So I tried to not take the money. So my evaluation does not include whether or not he gave me money. And so generally, I've heard that he tries to do the right thing. From the people who ran his campaign, I heard that it was very like top-down militaristic, which is not a style that jives super well with millennials. So I'll be interested going into his next campaign if he's able to adjust and make his campaign one that's more desirable to work on for the younger campaign workers. Because I know that was a challenge that he faced during his election. He had some great technology that he was integrating into his campaign. In terms of his politics and policies, I'm glad that he supports the legalization of marijuana that also includes quite a bit of equity, equitable ownership of the new entities that that will be created, that that's something that he's also interested in, because that's something that I'm interested in. I like the graduated income tax. I like moving away from regressive taxes like uh, gas tax or other regressive taxes that hit people, all people at the same rate and that are on sort of basics. So I'm glad that he doesn't like that. Um, you know, honestly, I've only met him once or twice. So jury is still out a little bit. But, you know, I've heard that he was looking around too for another potential speaker. Now, it's clear that there was a strong relationship at the get-go. So I think the real critical moment for JB will be as this gets going, to what extent does he display independence from the party leadership? To what extent does he 
even maybe go out on a limb and support a candidate like myself, knowing that he needs credibility away from the existing system to continue to have effectiveness and have the trust of the people. And the trust of the people is always what I focus most on because as that's why I ran in the first place. As a person who was a voter, I just felt so unexcited about my choices so many times. And I was really upset. Even when I was on the ballot, there were almost no women up t- ticket. No women, no people, no gender queer people, um, no trans people, no LGBTQ people. I mean, it was just like, it was very white male up the ticket. And so then when I'm running now and I am aware that I am, I, I occupy only one, I have white privilege, but I am a woman. So I occupy a space where in some ways I have privilege and in some ways I also receive a very specific type of hatred in my day-to-day interactions. I want to break down the barriers and I'm willing to take the people who tell me that I shouldn't be running because of who I am because it's more important that I see for myself that everyone else sees that what's most important for someone who's governing us is that they see us, they care about us, and they work with people who see and care about people at other states to make sure we have best po- the best possible policy that works for all of us. In looking into specific issues, you mentioned taxation. That's become really big in the national dialogue because of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez. On the federal level, what is your perspective on fair taxation? Yeah, you know, on the federal level, I think what we need to be looking at is not so much the tax structure first, but I think we need to look at how do we fulfill basic human rights and basic human dignity in our country? How do we make sure that the UN Council isn't sending in researchers to figure out whether or not our poverty level is actually inhumane, um, which is a thing that's occurred. How do we make sure our democracy isn't making sure our democracy isn't dropping down? I think right now we're at a yellow grade of democracy. So I think we need to focus on what are the programs that we really need in place? How do we make those programs delivered efficiently? What's the actual budget for those? And then what's all this debt and what's the correct structure for the debt? And when you look at the debt structure and the actual programs we need, then we can find the correct finance plan to fit that and that taxation plan and how do we make it sustainable so it's not something like the boomers have created where every other day the sky is falling and they're going to take away a program that's critical for people and that keeps people alive. Hey everyone, I'm Nathan. And I'm Dylan. And as you know, Millennial Politics is totally independent and volunteer run. That means every podcast you listen to, every article you read, and every tweet you see is created by a dedicated team of volunteers. It also means that we can say what we want to say when we want to say it, but we rely on listeners just like you to support our work. We hope you'll consider supporting us by subscribing at patreon.com slash millenpolitics. Every dollar will Will go directly towards our mission of shining a spotlight on progressive candidates 
causes, and organizations. And if you subscribe at the ambassador level or more, we'll send you a free copy of How Our Government Really Works Despite What They Say. It's an award-winning book about the intricacies of American government, and you'll get to join our exclusive ambassador Slack channel and get to hang out with us all day, every day. I pretty much live there, so if that appeals to you, come join us. And we want to give a very special shout-out to our executive producer, Greg Stevens, and our producers, Brad Tracy and Renee Garcia-Brown. Again, if you want to continue hearing interviews and conversations just like this one, we hope you'll visit patreon.com slash millenpolitics. That's patreon.com slash M-I-L-L-E-N politics and join the movement. All right, now back to the show. You mentioned in your announcement post on Facebook the importance of LGBTQ rights. You just talked about the importance of LGBTQ representation. A big problem, an impediment, is that most Americans actually believe we already have LGBTQ protections on a federal level, which is not true. And it is only a minority of states that have protections. Even among that minority, most of them do not have comprehensive protections. What exactly is the state of LGBTQ rights nationally? And what impact do you hope to make as a senator? Our national status is tragically insufficient. And I would and to I would compare in some ways and and maybe not in some ways the status of like the Me Too movement. There could be a Me Too movement of LGBTQ hate crimes. And the fact that there are so many and that it is so pervasive and almost everybody I know within that community has experienced hatred at some point on some level and some extremely severe. In Texas, I hear about people being pulled by a truck if, if they're identified, if they're out um, for who they are as a person. And I'm a person that doesn't believe tolerance is a solution. I believe celebrating people as they are is a solution. And so um, I actually love the Carly Jepsen party for one video. That's like in my, my America, like we can have Carly Jepsen party for one with everyone and find a way to make that happen. And so unfortunately, because there's so much hatred, we have to put restrictions in place and make there be actual consequences. So what that looks like in the law is being very specific. And finding people who have been, and this is where sort of my research skills come in handy, um, finding people who have been impacted, listening to their stories, listening to many of their stories, and then crafting legislation that prevents what happened to them from happening to anyone else again. And that is how you, that is how we change things together. Trans people are more likely to be murdered. And if they're murdered, they're often misgendered in the police report. And so it takes a really long time for their family to find them and to even know that they've passed away. And so, and by the time the family is contacted, all of the leads are dead because the police can't start an investigation until the family is contacted. Then there's almost never justice for the person who was murdered. So I'm planning on, I'm working with a friend to write a bill to help take care of that situation in Illinois. That's something that I'd love to bring to the federal level as well. And one of the biggest responsibilities of the Senate that's unique to the upper chamber of Congress is confirmations, whether that be of cabinet nominees or judicial nominees. According to 538, your Democratic incumbent has voted to confirm at least 
10 Trump nominees, including, uh, including James Mattis and Nikki Haley. Uh, he's also been part of the majority of Democrats who have fast-tracked Trump's judicial nominees for various disturbing reasons, such as quite literally to give red state Democrats more time to campaign uh, during the midterm cycle. Uh, what will your approach be to these nominees? And if you had been a sitting senator, do you think you would have also voted to fast track or confirm any Trump nominees? I absolutely would not have. And this is where these Democrat games to like play political games to try and give people an advantage are hurting us. And they're hurting us in the direct way. I say a lot, like, why is my senator spending so much time? Why is my opponent spending so much time just blaming Trump for McConnell for the shutdown? Because his food on his table isn't impacted by it. Because if it were his kids who needed dinner that night, I bet he'd be talking to McConnell and not tweeting BS about him. And it's that ability for him to be so disconnected with everyday people that uh, with the appointments and hearings like what you're saying, it's the same thing. It's disconnect. It's disconnecting with everyday people. For Kavanaugh, he actually didn't even say how he was going to vote. He knew for months that he was going to have to vote. He's the Democratic whip. It's basically his job to be out there and convincing others how to vote. He didn't say until the day of the vote that he was not voting for Kavanaugh. And I didn't hear him say, people said, oh, well, he did the best of the Judiciary Committee. Well, that's like the best of the flunkies on the questions that he asked Kavanaugh. And I don't think that that is a high enough bar. And one of the, one of the aspects of the job I'm actually most excited about is asking questions. I was professionally that was my profession, was learning how to ask the right questions and how to really get people to elicit things that maybe either they don't want to say, they don't know how to say, uh, and, and getting them to be able to express themselves. And so when we're dealing with potential bad actors, that skill is an incredible asset. And I always joke that like those vid- that there was like a video of Elizabeth Warren grilling the medical guy who had had stolen money, and she asked how many how many how much of the money had he returned to his employees, and he tried to say something else, and she asked the same question again and again until he said zero cents. So I think I have that sort of tenacity and the ability to identify what needs to be asked. So that way we're not seeing a Senate hearing where we feel like our voice still hasn't, our perspective hasn't been shared because it's, the seats are occupied by old white men who don't care. And speaking of Kavanaugh, there are calls right now for, for Congress to do a formal investigation because of grave concerns about how the FBI investigation was carried out. Two questions. Would you support said investigations? And do you believe Dr. Ford? I absolutely believe Dr. Ford. And I absolutely 100% support those investigations because I think that, that the Me Too era had so much steam going. And when I see what happened with Kavanaugh, what I see happening in Springfield with open retribution, with people not caring about a woman who was raped without caring about a gang rape situation. I'm sorry, I'm told often to wait. Like, what am I supposed to be waiting for when you're allowing these these men to become the Supreme Court 
justice. Like I'm not, I'm not going to wait. I don't have time to wait. My safety can't wait. And so, yes, of course we should be supporting Dr. Ford. Yes, of course we should be having that investigation and we should be getting rid of every single man who sat on that judiciary committee and failed to do his job. And do you believe that Kavanaugh lied? Of course I believe that he lied. I mean, I was always taught there's lies by omission. And I think that he outright outright lied. I think he's probably been lying for a long time about it. And that he has found a way in his mind to make excuses for himself and lie to himself. And that's what makes him able to lie to other people. And perhaps the biggest issue of the past election cycle, at least for Democrats, was health care. Right now, we're seeing the we're seeing progressives in the House really pushed for the development of a strong Medicare for all plan. We're seeing Senator Sanders uh, lead that in the upper chamber. What is your perspective on health care? I absolutely think we need Medicare for all. I live in Illinois, a state where we have a disproportionately high amount of Medicaid patients. And as the federal money from Obamacare has been drying up to us um, beyond our pension problem, we, we're going to have an extremely hard time keeping healthcare going for the residents we have that are most in need. And we, we absolutely need to be treating healthcare as a human right. And in order to keep that this keep that true in Illinois and in so many states around our country we need the larger pool and we need everyone to be part of the same risk pool and then we can make sure that we actually have access that someone's financial status doesn't determine whether or not they live and die which is which is how it is currently and what is your immigration platform? You know what? I see a lot of abuse within our immigration system by Americans. And I see, I had someone come to me who's been trying to become a legal American for 10 years and has basically been led, a, led astray for many years, spent $50,000 on a lawyer who's barred in Illinois to have this person slow walk and essentially not even do the correct things or follow the correct protocol or get the correct meetings for her to become a citizen. She could have been a dreamer. And because of this terrible representation, she's now at risk of being deported. And so one of the things that I think our government has really fallen down on is providing an actual structure and making the process of becoming a legal citizen accessible and easier and make it something that people can do and achieve in an in a reasonable kind of way as opposed to throwing up barriers and then calling people illegal when they might be seeking amnesty or safety or any number of reasons that they might be coming for economic opportunity to be good workers uh, when we see workers come, we don't see an impact of Americans losing their jobs, we actually see our economy grow. So I think I see immigrants always as a source of additional health, additional labor, additional culture, bringing beautiful culture and diversity into our home, and becoming a part of our family and friends and neighbors. And so I strongly support immigrants, immigrants' rights, 
and making sure that immigrants that aren't haven't yet attained to that legal status or aren't yet don't yet have documentation that they're treated with human dignity and respect throughout the process and that that's a process where we don't let Americans rip people off and then steal their money like pirates and then and then fly them out of our country because I think that's just shameful that we do that. And I'd like to go back to the past quickly to kind of contextualize what's going on legislatively and judicially all the way back to 1882 when the Chinese Exclusion Act was passed. I go this far back because the Chinese Exclusion Act is what criminalized undocumented status and what put deportation and detention under federal jurisdiction, even though neither practice is mentioned in the Constitution. I'd like to read a quick passage from Justice David Josiah Brewer's dissent in the Fong Yu Ting case, in which a majority on the Supreme Court validated and expanded the Chinese Exclusion Act. The quote is in regards to deportation. Quote, it involves first an arrest, a deprival of liberty, and second, a removal from home, from family, from business, from property. It needs no citation of authorities to support the proposition that deportation is punishment. Everyone knows that to be forcibly taken away from home and family and friends and business and property and sent across the ocean to a distant land is punishment and oftentimes the most severe and cruel. Would you agree with this dissent against the Chinese Exclusion Act? I would absolutely agree with that. It is cruel and it is very arbitrarily enforced and it's enforced based on the color of the immigrant's skin in many cases. It's, it's, honestly horrific that we do this to people. And this actually happened to a friend of mine who was a, she was actually an au pair and she went back to get her visa stamped. And an American, someone in the American consulate, everything was all set up. And he said, I think you've spent enough time in my country. And he wouldn't give her her stamp. And she was not able to return to the country where she was having college. And she had all of her possessions there. She had her housing there. She couldn't even like return her key. She was in South Africa. And so it was, it was very traumatic. And I saw firsthand what happens on both sides of trying to rebuild your life when you can't even get this, like your bed back. As I'm sure you know, in 2003, the government removed immigration agencies from the Department of Justice and move them to the newly founded Department of Homeland Security. Do you support removing immigration agencies from the DHS as well as abolishing ICE? I do, absolutely. I've shouted abolish ICE for quite some time now. And I think that that shift that you've identified is critical in how we've made so many mistakes since 9-11. And mistakes in quite frankly, taking away the rights of people with brown skin, who now are very stereotypically, much more often likely to be stereotyped as some sort of threat to us, when in reality, the Muslim community itself can often be very helpful uh, in terms of identifying people who might want to hurt other people. And so I think that we need to have the shift back to human rights being the forefront. And people, when we operate out of fear, there's always that quote, the only thing to fear is fear itself. 
But I would add we should fear the policies built on fear because those are the ones that take away what we consider to be our most unalienable rights and our unalienable human rights. And so anywhere that we see an event that precipitated fear and a reaction, we should go back and look at a lot of the different policy from that era and see where are their their policies that are probably discriminatory that weren't vetted at that time because people were acting in fear. And lastly, how can folks get involved in your campaign and where can they find you online? Absolutely. So my Facebook page is at most active right now, Ann Stava Murray for Senate. Uh, you can just type in Stava Murray and most of my stuff pops up. Uh, only last name in the United States, it's Stava Murray. Good thing about hyphenating name. My Twitter handle is at Stava Murray for Senate or at Team Stava Murray. And my name on there is Ann Stava Murray for Senate. How to get involved? Please, if you are interested in, get, in getting involved, I'm going to have an Ask Blue link up soon. $1 a month is usually what I ask for. And it seems small and it seems like, oh, why would she even need a dollar a month? But what I find is it's a lot for some people. And for other people, it's not a lot. But no matter who you are, the more supporters I have, it's a lot for me. And it helps me get my message out to at least five to six other people who live in Illinois. So five to six people a month. And so I just need to, I have to get about a million votes. And so it's very important that I'm able to get the word out. So if you're able to just give a dollar a month to my Act Blue, that's a huge help. So I'll put the link on all of my social media. I'm also on Instagram as well. Okay, awesome. Well, thank you so much for coming on to the podcast today. And we hope to catch up with you in the future. Absolutely. And I'd love to talk to you along the way too, because my good friend Lauren Underwood actually encouraged me to run for Senate. And so she had also encouraged me to run for state rep. That's how we both ended up on the Time magazine cover. So I think that there might be some follow up as we're getting to the anniversary of the Women's March here on where the state of the state on where we're at today of women running for office. So I'm super excited to be going along in my journey with her by my side. Awesome. Yeah, we're excited too. And lastly, to our listeners, make sure to follow Millennial Politics on social media. Stay up to date with the podcast by subscribing on iTunes and tune into the Progressive Radio Network every week at 8 p.m. Eastern to hear our newest episodes. Thanks for listening.